Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Good morning, I'm Champ Thornton. I'm one of the associate pastors, and Pastor Curtis has asked me to speak today, and it's an honor to open God's word with you. Thank you to Charlie for reading our passage today. Let me also wish you a very happy Father's Day to all the fathers who may be watching, although today's message is not directed at fathers specifically. I will say that I think it's not far from the mark to say that many, if not most of us, come into this weekend with hearts that continue to be exhausted and weary and heavy and broken. Over the last few months, we've all felt anxiety and loss and loneliness due to the pandemic. And more recently, we've seen afresh the wounds of division and injustice that have existed for many years. And through these experiences, I believe we are prepared to consider Revelation chapter 5, our passage today, with new eyes. For we typically start and end our worship services with singing and worship, but Revelation 5 ends with worship, but it begins with tears and despair. And so as today we step into this chapter and we find ourselves with the Apostle John in the place of sorrow, would you walk with me through this passage today? Personally, I've been thinking and praying and meditating on these verses for a few weeks now, and I found them to be good medicine for my heart. I've needed it. So let's get into the passage. How does the Apostle John guide us through this chapter from weeping to worship? So in the face of brokenness, first, our agenda is and must be God's plan. Our agenda is God's plan. So the chapter opens with the camera focused on a scroll, a scroll in the hand of God the Father seated on the throne. And this scroll is packed 
top to bottom, front to back, with content, with writing. Furthermore, no one can open the scroll and break its seals. In other words, no one is able to enact the content of the scroll. So what is this scroll? What's in it? What does it represent? Well, when in Revelation chapter 6, the scroll is eventually opened, what comes out at first is God's judgment upon the earth. But where that leads, by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, is new creation. At the end of the scroll, the world is made new. So the scroll is God's plan to deal with sin and to roll back its effects. No more violence, evil, sadness, injustice, immorality, abuse, hunger, disease, or death. This world made new is what the scroll does. This scroll is God's plan for this earth, his purposes for our world. And in response, John weeps. But what moves John and what's at stake in this whole discussion is God's agenda for this world and not our own priorities. And often, I think, we're not against what we would view as God's agenda. I mean, why would we? Of course, we're Christians. But rather, I think where we might not be in sync with God's agenda is that we have defined his plan too narrowly. As if there are some items that we're comfortable with and others that we're not. Because we've been taught by logic or our upbringing or our circle of friends our political affiliations, that doing the right thing mainly looks like some scriptural virtues, while what other people call scriptural virtues are not that terribly important. For example, if social justice feels opposed to evangelism in the gospel, then we've picked up on some of God's agenda, but not fully. Or if the need to care for the disadvantaged feels in conflict with the need for people to take responsibility, then we picked up on some of God's agenda, but not fully. God's agenda is bigger than human allegiances and party lines. His agenda and plan are seen in the full breadth of new creation. His agenda is for human flourishing and holy living. For the needs of the physical body and the soul. For justice and for mercy. So where does your view and my view of God's agenda for this world need expanding in order to take in its true scope? Our vision for this world should be as wide as God's plan for this world. But this agenda of God's for our world, we know that it will arrive in the future, but for now, our world is broken. And our immediate response should fit and reflect that brokenness. So second, in the face of brokenness, our response is and ought to be empathy. So in this scroll, God's agenda for this world is revealed. An angel asks, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? Who is worthy to bring God's purposes to pass? And no one steps forward. No one is found worthy. No one in heaven above, 
No one on earth, no one under the earth. And left like this, the brokenness and the sin would remain. And John sees and he realizes what it means. And he feels the weight of it all and he says, I began to weep loudly. He's devastated. He's moved deep within. He's wrecked. Why? Not because he's personally in harm's way, although he's obviously part of God's plan. And he's not moved solely by some personal lack. Rather, he's moved by something outside himself. He's heartbroken by the brokenness he sees and by the solution that he does not see. So let me ask you, How are you moved by the brokenness around you? Do you see it? Do you intentionally take initiative to see it? Let me ask you, what would happen if you took time to stop and envision yourself or your children or your sweet grandchildren in the shoes of someone else? And this includes whomever is the they in your life. They always do this. That's so like them. They never do that. Now, sometimes we get frustrated with other people because we wish people could think more like us. But Jesus wants us to reverse that, to think like others. This is the Christian way, to see the brokenness and suffer as if we feel it ourselves. This is what Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 calls us to do. It says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Did you hear the words as if? Not you are as if you are in prison, but as if you were. It's putting yourself in the shoes of another. So will you take time to look through the eyes of someone else, the they? What will you see? What will you learn? You will see brokenness, and you will learn to weep. But those tears are not forever because, third, in the face of brokenness, our solution is the Lamb. And now in Revelation chapter 5, everything changes. There's an announcement that someone is worthy to bring God's purposes to pass. Who is it? He's the Lion of Judah, it says. The royal descendant of David. So David, king of Israel, lived around 1000 BC. But thousands of years before that, God had given a command to Adam and Eve to rule the world as God's representatives on earth, like kings under his ultimate authority. And all was good and very good. But Adam rebelled against God's authority, and so he failed to rule this world, to take care of it, to cultivate it, and make it flourish. And so now let's fast forward to David. And he was supposed to obey where Adam and Eve had failed. And his reign, like theirs, represented God's rule. But David and his royal descendants after him also largely failed to rule well. And like Adam and Eve, they sinned and so failed to be a source of blessing to the world. Now, lest we be too quick to judge Adam and Eve and David, all of us are in the same boat. 
We resist God's rule in our lives. We fail to rule the world around us well and bring human flourishing. And the truth is we can't even rule ourselves. But one day, one descendant of David never failed. He was tempted like Adam, but unlike him, he never rebelled against the Father. And his life and actions and words used God's power and authority to serve and to spread God's blessing and human flourishing. And he, unlike all before him or since, was worthy. He was worthy, and all others were not, and we're not, to open the scroll and to bring God's purposes to pass. So in our passage, the Apostle John hears the announcement of the man who's worthy, who has conquered the heir of David, the Lion of Judah. He hears this announcement, and he turns, and he looks, and he sees not a lion, but surprisingly, a lamb. And more than that, a lamb that had been killed but was now alive again. So why is this important? Well, verse 9 of this chapter says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So here's where all this is going. God is bringing his plan for the world into existence to make a new heaven and new earth to remove all evil and injustice and sin and brokenness for all ethnicities, every tribe and people. And he brought that about not through conquering the forces of evil and taking them down, but by conquering the forces of evil by laying down his own life. And all through the rest of the book of Revelation, God's victory is won not by the lion who roars and dominates, but by the lamb who suffers and dies. There's so much we could say here, but in brief, the lamb here means that this world's issues include societal problems needing to be fixed, but at heart, there's also a sin problem needing to be forgiven. He's the lamb who died as a sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice makes the world new. And the lamb here means that our problems are not only around us, they're in us. And the lamb also means, yes, we want people to be free of the pain of hunger and poverty and oppression, but also we want them to be free of the pain of hunger and poverty and oppression forever. And not only in this life. And so we bring the good news and we declare the good news. But looking at the victory of the Lamb for all nations also means that in wanting to spread the gospel and to help others, we also follow his example in how we do it. So like Jesus, we don't look for solutions to problems by grabbing and wielding power over others, but by using power to serve others and by sharing power with those who have none. And like Jesus, we don't hold on to our rights and comforts, but we lay them down for others. And like Jesus, we don't circle our resources for the benefit of our own tribe and group, but rather are generous for the sake of every ethnicity, every tribe and language and people and nation. And yet we also have no illusions. We're realists. 
about our own actions and contributions. You see, fourth, in the face of brokenness, our actions are signs. They're signs. So Jesus is king, and he made all of us, his people, a kingdom and priests to God. In other words, we rule under him and with him. We are to rule well, to cultivate and care for the world and the people around us. He rules and we rule. But it's his rule that brings God's purposes to pass. And only he is worthy to open the scroll. And only he will truly and actually and fully remove all sin and brokenness. So some may conclude, well, it's a broken world, so what can you really do about it? Yet this passage says that we're still called to rule as kingdom and priests. To lean in. We're called to act, to take risks, to serve, to follow his specific callings for our lives. And your ruling well may look very different than mine. Still fitting God's plan, still fitting within his agenda for this world, but not necessarily identical to others. You may give your life to education, to educating the next generation. Or you may expend the majority of your free time in evangelism, mainly. Or for serving the public good. Or for promoting human flourishing. Or you may disciple others. Or you may fight for the rights of the oppressed and the powerless and the unborn. Or any combination of these and more. Whatever God has called you to do within his wide agenda, whatever needs lie at hand and in your heart, follow your calling to do good, to rule well, to be gospel, salt, and light. Yes, it's still required that we remember to rule well. But we must also remember that our rule is not identical to his. The reality is that we may labor with little to show for it. Only he is worthy to open the scroll and bring God's purposes to pass. We may suffer with no vindication. We may serve with hardly any notice. We may hold back the tide for only an hour, but everything we do, every effort, every prayer, every sacrifice, every word is a sign. It points the men and women and children who see it to the one, the worthy one, the one who will right every wrong. According to Titus 2.10, Christian actions, quote, adorn the teaching of God our Savior. There's teaching, there's gospel, and there's adornment, the good works that go with it. To adorn means to beautify, like a frame drawing attention to the portrait that, that surrounds it. We don't bring in the kingdom, but we point to the one who will. I recently had a birthday, and my kids over the years have drawn pictures for me on my birthday, crayon and marker drawings not infrequently, of our family. I love those sometimes scribbly drawings, not because they're perfect, 
photo quality reproductions of our family, but because they point at something special. They point and they paint. So when you give a cup of cold water, the Father sees and smiles. When you stumble through your words giving the good news about Jesus, the Father sees and smiles. When you hold fussy children and tell them about the Lord, the Father sees and smiles. And when you pray and text and talk and tweet and sacrifice for the sake of others, the Father sees and smiles. Our actions, though vital and necessary, and bringing true good into the lives of others, may or may not bring lasting change to this world. But they will always stand as signs. Our scribbles pointing to the Lamb. And we point to him because there's no better place to point. When people stake their lives on him, they can be confident how it will all turn out. We know how the story ends. In the face of brokenness, we know that our hope will not disappoint. The weeping that pervades the first part of Revelation 5 is replaced in the last half by worship. Those closest to God's throne first erupt in praise, the Lamb is worthy. Then they're joined by thousands and thousands of others, the Lamb is worthy. And then every creature anywhere and everywhere joins in, he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So even before we get to new creation, even before things are made right, even when sickness and sadness continue, when disappointment and devastation endure, even in your grief and your pain right now, Jesus the Lamb is worth everything you have. He is worthy of a life laid out in service. He is worth all your power, all your wealth, all your wisdom, all your strength. He's worthy of a life laid out in worship. The one who laid down his life for you, he's worthy of honor and glory and blessing. If you dedicate your life to his cause, if you are one of his people washed in the blood of the lamb, no one will ever be excluded because the new creation is for every tribe and people. And you'll never find the lamb disappointing because he truly is worthy of your praise and your trust. And this will never change. And in fact, it will get better because serving and worshiping him means that one day, nothing in that new world, nothing will fall short of what it could have been and should have been. Nothing will ever again make you disheartened and disillusioned, ever. Nothing will make you sad or hope for something better. And brother and sister, in that day, every sacrifice will be repaid. 
and every sorrow replaced with joy, and every burden of grief outweighed by glory. And we will find then that it was worth it all. He is worth it. He is worthy. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, our words fail to even sketch the mind-blowing beauty and glory and goodness that will fill our lives in that day. And yet we confess that right now our minds can barely keep up and survive the brokenness that we feel. Lord, carry us between those points. Sustain us with the hope of the Lamb of God who not only takes away our sin, but makes all things new. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray this in your name. Amen.